Hello and welcome to the Lancet HIV podcast for the July issue of the journal. This month I'm joined by Jeff Gottlieb and Robert Smith from the University of Washington in Seattle, USA, two of the authors of a review on HIV2. So, Jeff and Robert, I'm actually going to start sort of where your review ends. If I was to ask the average Joe in the streets about HIV, they would normally be able to um, offer a few bits of information about, about the disease and about the virus. Yet in the conclusions of your review, you say that HIV-2 could be considered a neglected tropical disease. How can that be? Um, this is Jeff. Uh, I think many people, at least where we live in Seattle, know actually quite a fair bit about HIV and AIDS. And um, at least here, kids in elementary school uh, are taught about HIV and AIDS and STDs. Um, and then in Senegal and West Africa, where we work and do most of our work on HIV-2, there's pretty good public health information campaign about HIV, and although I think we certainly can do better globally about uh, educating the average person on the street about HIV, and I'll let Bob uh, maybe mention about uh, HIV-2 specifically. Yeah, so I, I guess I would agree that it'd be pretty unusual for the average person on the street to know much or, or really even anything about HIV-2. In, in fact, our experience is that Many clinicians and even uh, HIV specialists and, and researchers really don't know a lot about the virus. So, the, and it really, you can think about it, the people who study and treat HIV-2 are actually a pretty small club. Yeah, and I would add that um, funding and research and public health efforts about HIV-2 have certainly lagged behind that of HIV-1. But on the other hand, um, all the development for drugs and diagnostics for HIV-1 have had a, as well as public health interventions and clinical care, have had a beneficial spillover onto the uh, on HIV-2. And I think there's little doubt that if there was no HIV-1 pandemic, we would know very little about what's going on with HIV-2, and most of that knowledge wouldn't exist. But getting to your point about whether HIV-2 is a neglected tropical disease, I was, you know, the WHO and the CDC do not include HIV-1 or 2 as a neglected tropical disease on their list, which had generally been defined as poorly funded communicable diseases affecting the, uh, you know, the billion or so global poor in low and middle income countries. You know, neglected tropical diseases include things like leprosy and guinea worm and rabies, river blindness, burley ulcer, about 21 diseases in total. And HIV-2 is not on that list, of course, um, but... That's probably because it's being lumped together with HIV-1, which is certainly not neglected, um, but we could argue whether it has adequate funding and resources to end the epidemic currently. But I think HIV-2 by itself is mostly obviously relegated to West Africa and disproportionately affects poor and marginalized populations in the region. And, and by that definition, um, although not officially a neglected tropical disease, kind of fits all the criteria that one would think about for a neglected tropical so there's perhaps a difference in the level of attention given to HIV-1 and HIV-2. Um, but how do the viruses differ in their origins and their global distribution? The available data suggests that HIV-1 originally entered the human population as a zoonotic transmission of simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV, from chimpanzees in Central Africa. And that this happened sometime in the first half of the 20th century. So primate to human transmission of HIV-1 appears to have occurred at least four times, and that's represented by the four phylogenetic groups of HIV-1, which are M, N, O, and P. Now, groups N, O, and P are relatively rare, 
but human transmission of group M HIV-1 actually accounts for the vast majority of HIV infections worldwide. So for um, HIV-2, its origin is from a different SIV strain originally from Sudi mangabees, which are small West African monkeys that are often hunted for uh, bushmeat and sometimes kept as pets in West Africa. I've uh, visited many households and stores where people have Sudi mangabees uh, as pets, which is a little shocking. And uh, this cross-species jump from Sudi mangabees to humans also probably happened in the early part of the 1900s and probably happened at least nine times. Two of those events have significant hold in humans and, and become endemic in West Africa, and this re is represented by the HIV groups A and B. Right. So w with regard to the, the global distribution of HIV-2, of the roughly 37 million people worldwide, I think that's the up-to-date WHO estimate, that are living with HIV, perhaps mm, so something in the order of one to two million are infected with HIV-2. But we have to keep in mind that this estimate is really primarily based on serological studies from the 1990s. And in many areas, robust community-based epidemiologic data are really lacking, and there's no formal surveillance systems in place for tracking HIV-2 in the human population. Yeah, so mostly HIV-2 is in West Africa with uh, limited spread to places with socioeconomic ties to West Africa. Um, places like France and Portugal have significant numbers of cases. Many of the former Portuguese colonies like Brazil, parts of India, Angola, Mozambique um, have uh, some cases of HIV-2. All in all, there's about 31 countries that have reported uh, HIV-2 outside of Africa. Um, here in the U.S., the CDC has only uh, documented less than 200 cases, although I think this is probably a, a pretty a large underestimate given uh, poor testing and uh, often misdiagnosis patients as having HIV-1. I should also note that an individual can be infected with both HIV-1 and 2 at the same time, and that this is actually not uh, uncommon in West Africa. You're saying really that it, the distribution and spread of HIV-2 and HIV-1 is perhaps actually related to the history of, of those regions and, and sort of the past colonial powers. I think that's true uh, generally. I think there are other factors that have limited its spread. What are what other factors have, have perhaps limited the spread of HIV-2? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Um, what, uh, I think the ultimate question is why is HIV such a poor pathogen and why hasn't it spread like HIV-1 and why hasn't it over the course of its uh, evolution in humans evolved to be a better transmitter? And I think the ultimate answer to that is we don't really know. We know from cohort studies and female sex workers in West Africa and community-based studies and modeling data that sexual transmission is significantly lower for HIV-2 than it is for HIV-1. Modeling data suggests it's about uh, a quarter uh, as transmissible as HIV-1. Uh, we know that studies looking at genital shedding of HIV-1 and HIV-2 both in uh, men and women shows significantly lower rates and levels of shedding of HIV-2, suggesting a mechanism for its spread. Right. And, and, you know, we also know that the amount of viral RNA that's in the blood, which we refer to as plasma viral load, is typically orders of magnitude lower for HIV-2 than it is for HIV-1 in the absence of antiretroviral therapy. So, in fact, about a third of HIV-2-infected people naturally control their viral load without ART. That's compared to maybe about one in every 500 to 1,000 for HIV-1. So, lower plasma viral load correlates with a lower risk of transmission, mm -hmm. at least in comparison to HIV-1.
Yeah, and I would say there's been some interesting epi data emerging over the last decade or so that HIV-2 is declining uh, in many locales in West Africa, and those reasons are a bit unclear. Um, the decline really looks like it started in the 1990s prior to the scale-up of ART in West Africa and certainly prior to much prevention, uh, current prevention efforts, and so we're, we're not really clear on why it's declining. Right. You know, maybe the better question might be how did HIV-2 reach such high prevalence rates in places like Guinea-Bissau in the first place? In Guinea-Bissau, HIV-2 had infected about 10% of the adult population by the mid-1980s. Well, in that case, in, in terms of Guinea-Bissau, the war, certainly the war for independence that took place in the 1960s and 70s was uh, almost certainly a contributing factor, and it's it's likely that many of the same social and cultural factors that led to the spread of HIV-1 in Africa contributed to the spread of HIV-2. Um, I think looking forward into the next five or ten years, the hope is that we can make significant improvements in areas of prevention, diagnosis, retaining people into care, and treating HIV-2 in infected individuals. And by doing so, uh, we would be able to, what we say, bend the curve downward and radically reduce the incidence of HIV-2 in West Africa and other places. Great. So that would uh, lead on to my next question very nicely. So do prevention and management of HIV-2 differ from those for HIV-1? Yeah. So HIV-1 and 2 uh, share the same roots of human-to-human transmission, um, sexual contact, blood-borne exposures, perinatal transmission. So efforts to prevent uh, transmission of HIV-1 such as condom use, PrEP, PEP, ART as prevention, mother-to-child transmission prevention, uh, male circumcision, treatment of concurrent uh, sexually transmitted infections, harm reduction strategies such as uh, clean injection equipment. Although those have not been proven to prevent HIV-2 in any clinical setting, and there's not good data to suggest that it should, given all the data we know for HIV-1, it's, uh, it's likely that uh, all these prevention efforts that we use for HIV-1 would be equally or similarly efficacious for HIV-2, although that's uh, purely based on what we know for HIV-1. I, th- I think it's also important to highlight the fact that uh, a vaccine to prevent HIV-2 infection has not yet been developed, and efforts to do so uh, up until this point uh, have been lacking. I think also uh, thinking about just care and management of the HIV-2-infected patient should be similar to that for HIV-1. Diagnostic testing, viral load monitoring, uh, initiation of ART, um, all are are important and should be similar to that of HIV-1, although using HIV-specific testing. Heart initiation, monitoring, uh, dealing at least in places with limited resources, such as uh, food insecurity and transportation costs to clinics treatment of OIs and prophylaxis should all be about the same. Uh, That being said, you know, there's never been a single randomized controlled trial of how to treat and um, care for HIV patients, HIV-2 infected patients, Mm -hmm. Um, and everything we really know has been extrapolated for HIV-1. We we have far less robust data about how to manage, treat, and care for HIV-2 infected patients, although several trials, including an RCT, are ongoing. Okay, so that's harking back to the issue of of neglect, perhaps, for for this disease. And is is drug resistance a problem for HIV-2 as it is for HIV-1? Yes, drug resistance is certainly a problem in HIV-2, and that's both for individual patients and their clinicians, uh, as well as for regional and national HIV treatment programs. 
So HIV-2 is intrinsically resistant to the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, or NNRTIs, uh, which are an important class of antiretrovirals used in first-line treatment of HIV-1 infections. So right off the bat, NNRTI-based drug regimens can't be used to treat HIV-2. HIV-2 is also naturally resistant to fusion inhibitors and to several of the HIV-1 active protease inhibitors. And in fact, the only protease inhibitors with clinically effective potency against HIV-2 are sequinavir, darunavir, and lopinavir, and sequinavir is not routinely available at present. That really leaves only darunavir and lopinavir for the protease inhibitor class. Yeah, I, w I would add that the nucleoside analogs, such as tenofovir and emtricitabine uh, or FTC, are highly active against two. Unfortunately, um, we've seen a lot of HIV-2-infected patients develop resistance to these drugs in this class, especially if uh, treated with less than active combination drugs. And patients who have been treated, at least in West Africa and even in uh, developed countries on protease inhibitor-based regimens often develop multi-drug resistant virus with both uh, NRTI and uh, PI resistance uh, that leaves few uh, options uh, for effective treatment. Lastly, integrase inhibitors or INIs like raltegravir, LVtegravir, dolutegravir, those are all highly potent against HIV-2. And so this particular drug class really represents an attractive option for first-line treatment. And there's also some hope that people who failed earlier regimens might respond to an INI-based combination, uh, uh, although the data supporting this idea right now are, are actually quite scarce. And it, as is in the case for HIV-1, the development of on-treatment resistance to integrase inhibitors has been reported in HIV-2-infected patients. There really are no drug classes that uh, have not had resistance associated with them in HIV-2. Yeah, I would just add that there are some HIV-2 folks uh, that we see in the U.S. and in Europe that have essentially untreatable, multidrug-resistant HIV-2, and there are no known drugs available to treat them. Fortunately, this has been rare to date, but uh, potentially a growing problem. Another thing we think about, of course, is pretreatment or transmitted drug resistance in HIV-2. Fortunately, this has also been uh, quite rare uh, to date, but hasn't really been studied very uh, systematically, so we don't really know what the levels of pretreatment drug resistance are at the population level, especially in West Africa. Quite a, it seems, sounds like quite a concern. And then just, uh, I guess finally, in your review, you talk about achieving 90-90-90, the 90% uh, diagnosed, 90% on treatment, and 90% with viral suppression for HIV-2. What would you say are the key gaps, be it knowledge, technology, or drugs in our ability to achieve these milestones for HIV-2? Yeah, so I, th I think there are gaps in all three of the areas you mentioned. Uh, we lack uh, good uh, surveillance data for the first 90. Country-level prevalences of HIV-2 in places where it circulates are, are lacking, and the percent of folks who know their HIV-2 status specifically is also lacking, so we really don't have good data on uh, the first 90. All right, we also lack comprehensive data on the second 90, which is the number of people living with HIV-2 who are being treated with antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, I think in many regions, especially in West Africa, modern, generic, uh, single-tablet regimens that are active against two are not available. I think there's been hope that the rollout of dolutegravir and other INIs will be helpful in this regard, although the recent warnings about uh, neural tube defects for dolutegravir coming out of Botswana give me some pause about how widely it'll be uh, able to be used in 
places where HIV-2 is endemic, especially since the majority of folks with HIV-2 in West Africa are childbearing age women. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and I guess I'd tack on uh, regarding the second 90 that HIV-2-specific testing, like point-of-care diagnostics, viral load testing, drug resistance testing, those are not routinely, if at all, available. So technology uh, certainly is an issue. Yeah, and then I would just say the third 90, the number of people living with HIV-2 that have viral suppression, the data for that is really sparse, and so we don't really know exactly um, what that number looks like. The, there's been very few studies to look at rates of uh, viral suppression. Uh, and I would include in that people who are n naturally suppressing their viral load in addition to those who are suppressing their viral load on treatment. So I think overall we have a fair amount of work ahead uh, to get to 90-90-90 for HIV-2. And I think we should strive to have those goals uh, equally for HIV-1 and HIV-2. Thank you very much for that. That's the end of my questions. I seem to have covered a lot of ground there. Very well done. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Yeah, uh, it's our pleasure. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, Peter.